We live in a world where you can get anything you need delivered to your door thanks to DoorDash. If you don't want to do the dishes or you feel a little sick, let DoorDash bring dinner tonight. My family uses DoorDash all the time because it connects us to our favorite restaurants without us having to drive. Last night, we got some Indian food for my wife, some gumbo for me, and sushi for the kids. And everyone was happy, and we didn't have to do the dishes. The process of ordering was quick and easy, and I love DoorDash for real. So I was so happy to do this for them because I'm a customer, because I know DoorDash is your door to more. Must be over 21 to order alcohol. Alcohol available only in select markets. DoorDash, your door to more. Download the DoorDash app now to get almost anything delivered. Little Wing is now streaming on Paramount+. Plus. I'm in a period of emotional people. I saw all the, oh, I don't care crap. A little adventure. Where are you going? I'm going to steal a bird from the Russian Pigeon Mafia. Let's do it. Goes a long way. <laughs> Join Brooklyn Prince with Kelly Riley and Brian Cox. Life can hurt, but life is sweet. Little Wing, rated PG-13, may be inappropriate for children under 13. Now streaming exclusively on Terramont Plus. Okay, ready? But you know it's about a time when you get yourself in a I want to that might be the best question I've ever been asked. <laughs> The New Yorker said that your play treats black experience as a subject to elicit pleasure and joy rather than pain. And I think in all art, quite often the black experience, even from black pen, is about, hey, let's mine the trauma, let's deal with the pain. But you, in this piece, really lean toward the joy of black culture. I, as an actor, and also now a writer, have seen so many things in the theater specifically that have to go through a certain gaze to get space. And so sometimes that gaze likes to allow things through that put us in a more traumatized state. Mm. And so my commitment is to write towards the healing to make sure it's really appealing to us. And I was just at the theater before I came home after rehearsal and there are black women coming through that door ready. And there's a pride there that they don't always get in this space. So I'm I am intentionally writing things that allow black people, because when you write, especially theater pieces, they become a part of the canon. And the beautiful thing about this play, and we've already gotten some asks for licensing, is that in 2024, when this is out in the world, every time Chicken and Biscuits is done, it will employ seven black principal actors. That is huge. That is legacy. That is the thing. That is, I'm getting chills right now because that is why I write. Like the success of this moment is awesome, but I also understand what it is to be a black actor looking for work and the style of stories that you get. Douglas Lyons is the playwright behind Chicken and Biscuits. It is an hysterical, crazy, wild story of a black family family 
at a funeral and you can only imagine the chaos that's going to come out of that. He is an extraordinary actor. He is a rising screenwriter. It's all coming together for this man. So I wanted to talk to him about his play, about his writing, about his future. Let's get it. It's Douglas Lyons, the playwright behind Chicken and Biscuits on Touré Show. Why do you love the theater? Um, I love the theater because it sort of feels like the church for me. I grew up in the church. Um, it's a space Wait, where, where New Haven, Connecticut. Okay. Baptist. Baptist, but Protestant. I feel like it. it's Church of Christ, Disciples of Christ, wherever that falls. I don't know what was, that means. Was there a choir where they shouted? There was back a, at the oh, preacher? there was shouting. There was shouting. There was a choir. There were robes. There was a very specific structure to the service. So, and I'm a PK. But it was, but but it was very, you're a PK, you're a preacher's kid. Oh, so was your father the preacher? My mother was actually the preacher. Oh, wow. Excuse me, your mom. So wait, but was, so was it one of these sort of ecstatic services that like, you know, it's this epic thing? Yep. Yep. All of that. Those were My mother fun. was shouting with me in her stomach. Okay. That's beautiful. That's where I came from. Yeah. Beautiful. So, so, okay. So that, so the theater reminds you of that. Yeah. I think when I first encountered the theater, it was a mixture of all the things I had grown up with, like singing in church, dancing in dancing school. I had never acted, but it felt very theatrical. And I feel like the church itself is theatrical, right? Absolutely. Um, the personalities and the fashion and the commentary and the sermon and the say all of it. Uh, so yeah, I, the theater felt like a space where I went to be told a story. And because I had some natural talent, you know, mixed with my training, it felt like a place I could participate in telling the story. Mm, interesting. Interesting. It, so it makes a little more sense that you are having so much success with chicken and biscuits, a piece about a funeral when theater is so related to what goes on in the church for you. I'm I mean, you've been to a black church. I'm I'm assuming of, here. Of course, of it, course. It is it is a theater. Um, Absolutely. You know what I mean? And I mean, like, I mean, like, 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 white church is also theater. It's just very calm, boring theater. Black church is very loud, ecstatic. Yeah, fun it, theater. It's emotional and present, and I feel like it gives. Have you seen the play yet? No. You haven't seen the play? Okay. I won't ruin things. But there are moments in the play which explore how Black people heal. And when it comes to conversations of therapy, which is something that's very much in the know right now, you know, our therapy sometimes is very much in church. It's spiritual. It's a release that's different. And that's how people go through therapy. Now, I think we should actually get therapy as well. But that's also sure. another form of our release. And the play explores that a bit. So... Well, talk to me about why for you, black theater as opposed to film or television, because you could have had similar experiences and similar outlet in film or television. Funny enough, so I'm, I worked on my first TV show in the writer's room last year, and I'm actually getting into that space a lot more. Um, but theater was just my first love. And I was working as an actor at Beautiful the Carol King musical when I really started writing musicals and plays. I actually have written far more musicals than plays. Chicken and Biscuits was my first like full completed play. Sort of the last thing I wrote and the first thing to go. 
Um, but yeah, I sort of found myself through my pen, which led me down this really unexpected path that at first I was like, okay, this is a way to just heal myself. Writing was like healing after a relationship, but then it became an opportunity to tell black and queer stories to employ and push forward black women and give them roles that are meaty and meaningful um, in a space that is usually not made for us. I mean, I, I would imagine one of the joys of theater is you find out right away. The audience is right there as opposed to film and TV where you figure it out later. Like it's right, they tell you right away that was funny, that was dramatic, that was sad, that didn't hit, whatever. And that's sort of the... Um, that is what keeps us coming back, right? That's why that's the addiction, if you will, is that that feeling, that vibration as an actor that you get from the applause. But for me as a writer, knowing that nightly there are between six and seven hundred people laughing next to each other of all different backgrounds and races and identities over this black story of family and healing, you know, that is powerful or, stuff. Or, or not. Oh, they, they're always laughing. We mean or not. <laughs> What do you I mean, mean or like, not? Like, I mean, I mean, like if you lay out a hundred jokes, you know, even if you get ninety of them, you're you as the theory, as the writer is going to be like, damn, like why didn't that one joke work? Like why didn't that bit work? I'm not gonna I'm not gonna be cocky in any way, but I will say what's interesting, and this is when the collaboration comes in with the actors, right? Sometimes I've written something that is very simple, just like a hello. But the actors are now making that hello into a laugh, right? So the laughs are different every night, but since the first reading and we had four in person, one virtual, the laughs have been pretty consistent. And I, I think that's why it made it in, because it consistently brought joy. To my understanding, which is relatively limited, I've been to a lot of plays, but I am far from a scholar. Um, it seems there's two sort of polls in black theater there's august wilson over here there's tyler perry over there and others are on the spectrum maybe clustered you know more toward one aesthetic than the other or somewhere in the middle do you think that's an accurate assessment and and can you even place yourself on that spectrum or or no i think i think actually it's dangerous to make the spectrum between those two, because I think that limits okay. the box of what black theater can be. Because often through the white gaze, black theater is that. It's one or the okay. other, right? And I think where we should start moving towards, especially with this historic season, is that there is no definition of what black theater is. Black theater could be sci-fi. Black theater could be comedy. It could be drama. It could be, you know, um, being, you know, athletic. It could be, a love story. It could be anything because white stories don't have that same spectrum. They get every sure. single angle. And so I am debunking this idea that our stories have to be in the spectrum. Not a have to. Is there one of those men and their work who is more of an influence for you than the other? I would say Tyler Perry definitely taught me that what I was raised with, the love I was raised with, deserved a place and a space to tell that story. So people look at chicken and biscuits in the advertisement and assume it's exactly what Tyler Perry did. It's not exactly, I mean, but some of the personalities and the joy and the love that people get from his work, you will probably find. But I think some of the sophistication and the strife and 
uh, the drama that you get from an August Wilson play, you will also find in Chicken and Biscuits. So, um, but I, I mean, growing up, I didn't grow up on August Wilson, but I okay. grew up while Tyler Perry was sort of making his movement. So he's definitely had an influence on my ability to believe I belonged in this space. Okay. Yeah. The New Yorker said that your play treats black experience as a subject to elicit pleasure and joy rather than pain. And I think in all art, quite often the black experience, even from black pen is about, Hey, let's mine the trauma. Let's deal with the pain kind of a therapy session. Not always a, a tremendous amount of black art that is about the joy of black culture um, but you, in this piece, really lean toward the joy of Black culture. I, as an actor, and also now a writer, have seen so many things in the theater specifically that have to go through a certain gaze to get space. And so sometimes that gaze likes to allow things through that put us in a more traumatized state. Mm. And so my commitment is to write towards the healing, to make sure it's really appealing to us. And I was just at the theater before I came home after rehearsal, and there are Black women coming through that door, ready. And there's a pride there that they don't always get in this space. So I'm, I am intentionally writing things that allow Black people, because when you write, especially theater pieces, they become a part of the canon. And the beautiful thing about this play, and we've already gotten some asks for licensing, is that... In 2024, when this is out in the world, every time Chicken and Biscuits is done, it will employ seven Black principal actors. That is huge. That is legacy. That is the thing. That is, I'm getting chills right now because that is why I write. Like the success of this moment is awesome, but I also understand what it is to be a Black actor looking for work and the style of stories that you get. And you've given a lot of people jobs through this piece. Oh yeah, there are 30 Broadway debuts in our company, offstage and onstage. Um, nine of our actors out of 13 are making their Broadway debuts. And some people that literally were non-union prior to the pandemic are now Broadway principal contracts. And, and that so, changes their career. Oh my God. Oh my, I just got off a call with a, a Hollywood exec and he was like, I saw the play and I want to work. Like I, I'm trying to figure out what I can put her in. It is exposure for everyone. And that, I think, is the movement and and not just arriving on Broadway, but arriving on Broadway with something that is going to reach the people it was written for. I ask myself three questions now. What do I want to say? Who do I want to reach? And how can I be paid to do it again? That's like my life <laughs> motto. OK, I, I, I go ahead. Go on. No, no. So I'm very specific about the opportunities and the why, because as an actor, my actor brain initially was like, I want to be working. I, did I book a job? I need to, right? But now I have a little bit more breath to go, okay, but why am I doing this? And who am I trying to reach? And what am I saying? Because there's a responsibility with the pen. So I'm, I'm very aware of that. Uh, who are you trying to reach? With this, with Chicken and Biscuits specifically? Well, just, uh, I, I meant that more with your work in general. Because you're saying looking forward, I'm saying who do I want to reach? That was one of your three core questions. Uh, so who do, who is your envisioned audience? I think it ranges given the project. So I have this actor musician piece called Bo, and it is very queer centric. It's for the kid in Kansas who has not come out yet, who feels like he might want to end his life. That story is for him to say, don't run from yourself. Hold on a little longer. Everything's going to be okay. Right. Chicken and biscuits. There's actually intersectionality of queerness and blackness in the church, which we don't often talk about. 
And so there are black men sending me messages going, thank you. I've never seen myself on that stage. And I, I, I was able to heal and maybe have a conversation with my mother after this play. So I think every project is a little different. Polka Dots, which is a kid's musical I wrote, is based on the strength of a Little Rock Nine and Ruby Bridges. So it's more kids-based and, you know, little kids who feel like they are the other in their classrooms. That one is for them. Um, but every project usually has intention. We live in a world where you can get anything you need delivered to your door thanks to DoorDash. If you don't want to do the dishes or you feel a little sick, let DoorDash bring dinner tonight. My family uses DoorDash all the time because it connects us to our favorite restaurants without us having to drive. Last night, we got some Indian food for my wife, some gumbo for me, and sushi for the kids. And everyone was happy, and we didn't have to do the dishes. The process of ordering was quick and easy, and I love DoorDash for real. So I was so happy to do this for them because I'm a customer, because I know DoorDash is your door to more. Must be over 21 to order alcohol. Alcohol available only in select markets. DoorDash, your door to more. Download the DoorDash app now to get almost anything delivered. One of the people who helped inspire me to want to be in broadcasting is Oprah Winfrey. She's an inspiration for so many of us, but her daytime talk show was so incredible. And it told me that you could be black and authentic and real on TV. And that made me want to do it, too. Black Stories, Black Truths is NPR's new collection that's a celebration of blackness. Each of NPR's black voices are as direct, varied, distinct and nuanced as the black experience itself. In the Black Stories, Black Truths collection, you'll hear stories of joy, resilience, empowerment, and how to create world-shifting things out of struggle. Every episode is a living account of what it means to be Black today, told from a unique Black perspective. Black perspectives that haven't always been centered in the telling of America's story, but now they are the story. On NPR's Black Stories, Black Truths, you'll find a collection of some of NPR's best podcast episodes celebrating the Black experience. Hear a feed of episodes from across NPR's podcasts that center Black voices. Turn on NPR today and hear a range of voices as varied, as nuanced, and as Black as we are. Stories should never be about us without us. Listen now to Black Stories, Black Truths from NPR, wherever you get your podcasts. Influencer. It's a word that gets tossed around a lot these days. There is a woman who went the distance, who broke ground as the first true influencer by living a remarkable life. Her name, Elizabeth Taylor. I'm Katy Perry. This is the story of the original influencer. This is is Elizabeth the First. Elizabeth the First, the podcast, wherever you listen. You mentioned earlier the historic moment that you are part of. There's seven or eight black... Now eight. Yes. Now seven, eight yes. black written plays on Broadway right now. That is more than the previous 10 years combined, right? Like two, two years ago, it was one. You know, three years ago, it was zero. Now there's eight... Why is it that there's so many black 
written plays on Broadway right now. What happened? I mean, the the racial reckoning that we had with George Floyd, I think, played a lot, you know, into this moment and people pausing and not having excuses to ignore the fact that there are diverse writers of different backgrounds and genders out here in these streets. Um, And so I feel like the theater felt like it had a responsibility to step up and do the right thing. And now, mind you, we're still in a pandemic and everyone has not returned to the theater. The box offices are not just where they were. Like people are still afraid, rightfully so. So there has been this discussion, you know, are we the testers of, of the comeback? But for me, I've decided that, you know, there are very successful writers that are beloved in the theater who have never been box office hits. So I don't care about the box office as much right now. I care about the impact and the fact that there are college students who are coming to see this show three and four times because they see themselves. Mm. And that's something that theater usually doesn't do for people in my skin. But if you feel like this is because of some some guilt or some eye opening on the on the part of the gatekeepers of Broadway do you then foresee us soon going back to there only being one or two black plays on Broadway I I can't speak to the future I can only speak to the moment and so I I think what I'm hoping happens is that people pay attention to the audiences that are coming in. Because I think the largest change is our audience at Chicken and Biscuits is probably at least 40% people of color nightly. I'm going to just put that out based on what I've seen. Um, okay. That's unlike any other Broadway theater. And so sure. I, I don't know what the future seasons have to come, but I, I think this moment we are living right now will go down in history and the history books and to be a part of that is just all I can focus on. I mean, I know that there is a golden age uh, going on in film and television for black and brown creators in front of the camera, behind the camera, really authentic characters and stories being told from, from Netflix to the big screen to OWN to ABC all over the place. And when I talk to people there, they talk about uh, structural things that have happened behind the scenes in terms of people moving up, uh, in, in not into full green light position, but into more producing positions where, you know, so they're like, this is not a moment. This is a movement that will continue as well as the, the widening of the field to add something like owned, add something like Netflix that, you know, so you're not talking about a structural change on Broadway that will necessarily continue. I mean, the structural change boils down to like the theater owners and the lead producers and such. And just, you know, candidly, those are not often people of color. That's just the reality of where we are. Um, But that does not mean we can't continue to tell our stories and challenge these spaces with our stories. And that's just like that's that's the power I do have um, is is to do to do that part. Take me back into your process. How do you write a play? An idea. I call them mosquito bites um, that like swarm me and I'll smack it away and, and sometimes put it on a shelf. It'll come back. Um, Chicken and biscuits organically came to be, it was going to be a four person play with a queer couple and then the mother and father characters. And then there were some family gatherings and things that happened in my life where I was like, 
this is funny. Like, these people are funny. I think I can expand this and give more roles to Black women, which just, you know, at the time for me, um, backstage, it was very limited. We were in supporting roles or we were, you know, pillaged and oppressed. And I, I always seek joy. It's what I was raised on. It's how my mother, like, walks through the world. And so I wanted to bring that joy into this space. And and so I write typically five to 10 pages at a time. I was in residence at the director's company for two years before the pandemic hit. And I wrote two projects, Chicken and Biscuits being the second. And I would write 10 pages, call in some actor friends, hear it, get notes, 20 pages, 30 pages. And I met the director around page 30. And the first draft was completed August of 2018. You wrote 10 pages at a time and then looked at it, not knowing where you were going to go, or how you were going to end. Not exactly. Yeah. Not exactly. I often don't know where I'm going to go. Like I, if I know the why, if I know like why I'm writing it, what I want to say with it, then it'll get me to where I'm going. But I don't often, I don't outline plays exactly. TV stuff I will, but with yeah. my plays, I don't always outline. Cause I, I want to know where the end is. So then I can say, okay, you know, this is the journey and this defines the journey. And to, to earn this ending, you know, they're going to die, they're going to get married, whatever at the end, then this and this and this have to happen along the way. If I'm building the road as I'm going along, I'm like, well, well why am I walking in this direction? Who knows where we're going to end? But the who knows is what I think makes the play interesting. Like I have this new play Invisible I'm working on and I knew the last beat ended in a breath and a phone call. I knew we had to mirror how the play started but so I actually at one point wrote that, but then I went back to where I was. It's also like a sci-fi comedy. Um, so I didn't want to outline it. I wanted the characters to sort of teach me. And when I have readings, I learn. And that's how I build. Because I think it's sometimes if you do these mile markers of story and you write this whole draft and you haven't heard it, especially in the theater, that first reading, you know, 30 pages in, if people hate the character, you've written something now that they have to take a ride with, it's a waste. So that's why I do 10 pages at a time. <laughs> um, I, I, as, I, as I conceded, I haven't seen Chicken and Biscuits yet. I would, I would love to, but um, I apologize for not having seen it. All good. But, 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 but there's, there's a queer couple, and there's a little bit of a seemingly pearl-clutching around their, the family of the— uh, you know, And so okay, one of the— Things that was common when I was growing up is stories about people coming out and getting thrown out of their house or getting rejected by their family. And it seems like in the last decade, decade and a half, maybe two decades, uh, it's much more like acceptance. I, you know, I always knew you were gay. It's fine. It's okay. People accepting and even people accepting their children coming out as trans. And I wonder why you choose to put in the family being like, oh no, like he's bringing his white gay, his white boyfriend rather than the family being like, yeah, he's cool. Like Josh is like, you know, we don't care. We don't, you know, we always knew he was gay. We don't care. Well, what's the drama in that? If they say, yeah, we don't care. Come on in. That There's well, no there reason to write to play. There could be other sorts of, of drama. I, I feel like families are more, uh, not always, but more often to be accepting of folks saying like, hey, I'm, I'm gay. Like, okay, cool. Like, we may not like other things about you, but we don't mind that. I think in the black church, that is not the case. I okay. think there is such a long way to go. I mean, there are literally 
gospel worship song from like contemporary artists that I'm listening to. And I'm like, oh, I love this song. And in the middle of it, she'll be like, and we bind that spirit of homosexuality. Like it just still, still. So the play is necessary to combat that. Because that is still, that is literally on vinyl still. It's still being said. And so there are some spaces where there is acceptance, right? And embraced love, but that is not the norm, especially in the church. It's still very taboo. On your website, you talk about um, your, some of your acting teaching, um, Uh your acting classes that you give. And I was really uh, grabbed by one line. You talked about, you have a theater confidence class which is meant to empower actors to focus on their fullness. What does that mean? And what are you teaching there? So not only your book and your rep and how you deliver the material, but like what I'm learning, you know, going from actor to writer now is when you meet people with these generals and stuff, these execs, it's who are you as a personality? Are you somebody that I want to hang out with? for hours, for a a five-week rehearsal period into tech, into an opening of a show. So fullness meaning you don't feel like you have to wear the perfect dress and the perfect heels and you sang the note, but that you can walk in as yourself, flawed and beautiful, and give that to us because that's going to make us fall in love with you. And I think a lot of acting training creates these cookie-cutter types that don't actually land in the room because if we feel like we've seen 10 of you, you're not going to stand out. And so when I often, this isn't even, this isn't even technique. This is how to get the job. This is, yeah, this is, this is technique to be yourself, to like shake your nerves, to own what makes you unique and to sell that rather than selling what you think we want to buy. Cause that often doesn't land. Cause you're saying people who work a lot, are inherently fascinating human beings. And the, 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 the people who are higher than them are like, you're, you're super cool. I want to you know, hang out with you. Well, s- sometimes people will be incredible artists. They'll hit the high C, they'll do all the things, but then they're awkward or they don't feel like they know who they are. And so the director's like, I'm not going to have time to develop that person to be where I need them to be, though they do have the skills. So walking in your fullness is walking into a room and being like, hey, everybody, how you doing? Uh, You know, being comfortable in your skin as well as selling what you need to sell. And some people can sell, but they're not comfortable. Because I feel like there's two sorts of actors. There's chameleons, you know, who can who can who can be something entirely different every single time. I think about Jeffrey Wright every single time. He is totally different and he is amazing. Um, And then there's. People who are kind of playing themselves all the time, but it's so compelling. I, I, I think Ladder Denzel, he kind of keeps doing himself, but he's so cool that I want to hang out with him, whether it's, you know, in L.A. or New York or wherever he is. Well, that's part of it. It's like sometimes walking in your fullness is people seeing you in a way that they're like, I don't know what I just saw, but I want to work with that. That wasn't what I saw in the character, right? But sometimes if you walk in the room and you're trying to be the character, you don't walk in your fullness, you're not the character and you don't get the job. But sometimes your fullness in its essence pulls you into the job. So it's just knowing that. I hear that from actors a lot. I'm going into the audition. Do I try to do what I think they want or do I do what I think, which may not be what they want, but they discover they want it, you know, from me doing it? 
or they discover like, no, no, you're not what we want. <laughs> Get out. Well, I think sometimes you can see someone's in the like ballpark. They're in the world, but they're making choices that may not be what you want to do directorially. So it's can you make that adjustment from what you came in with to maybe what's closer to what they might want? And that's where the actor shines. It's like in that moment, your ability to take the note, we may not do the choice you did or the one I want ultimately, but your ability to like change that is like uh, that uh, we can work together. So is the dream for you to stay in theater or do you want to go to television or film? There is a magnet from TV and film right now. That is really exciting to my heart. There's a true mag. I had a meeting right before this and I was just like, y'all make me feel great. I feel wonderful in this. Well, well, I'll be, this is okay. You know, like, cause I think people really, theater is a harder ladder to climb in that, you know, the people who own the theaters and the artistic directors, the access can be harder. But when it comes to Hollywood, I feel like they read your words or they see your work and they're like, oh, I see what's going on here. I need to talk to this person. And it's direct. And I'm getting a lot of direct support in a way that makes me really feel excited um, about possibility. What does eating healthy mean to you? Whatever your eating goals, Thrive Market is the best place to get all your groceries and household essentials. And getting Thrive shipped to your door is like having a great supermarket right outside your house. I love that Thrive Market carries brands with the highest quality ingredients and ethical sourcing methods. Whether you're looking for organic kid snacks or low sugar alternatives or gluten-free essentials, Thrive Market's got it and their site lets you curate your shopping experience quickly. And as a Thrive member, I save on every order, usually about 30%, which of course I love. And when you join, you help a family in need with the membership matching program. Join in on the savings with Thrive Market today and get 30% off your first order plus a $60 gift for free. Go to thrivemarket.com slash for 30% off your first order plus that free $60 gift. That's Thrive, T-H-R-I-V-E Market. Dot com slash thrivemarket.com slash This episode is brought to you by Paramount Plus. Get in, loser! Mean Girls is now streaming on Paramount Plus. Join Katie Heron as she meets the plastics and Tina Fey's new twist on the modern classic. Get ready for more of the rumors, backstabbing, and jokes you loved from the original movie with some fetch surprises. Rated PG 13. Wear pink and head to ParamountPlus.com to try it free in that space so so a movie next um i can say that i have my first developmental deal that is closed um i can't say with who but that's for my pilot so i'm i'll be working on that come november and just lots of conversation we don't care who is we care how much you got how much did you get (laughs) i can't (laughs) say you that either (laughs) i knew you wouldn't tell me that i'm depressing (laughs) Look, tell me, you know, the difference between a good actor and a great actor. I I think it goes back to the conversation we just had. A good actor is someone who does exactly what you need it to be done. A great actor does what you need it to be done and elevates it to something you didn't know it could be. That's the difference. Mm, mm. And the difference between a good playwright and a great playwright. 
feel like I ain't been in the game long enough to really say that. I mean, <laughs> well, no, but not not necessarily that you're great, but you recognize what greatness is. Oh yeah, I for my personal taste, this is just my personal taste. A good playwright is able to tell a story through their voice with their mission. A great playwright is able to tell a story through their voice and their mission to maybe challenge the way we think or invite us into the way they think. And that's a lot of tasks in one piece, but some great things I've seen that I don't necessarily love have made me feel something like a, uh, it's bad when you see something and you don't feel anything. Mm-hmm. Indifference is the worst, right? Yeah. If you hate something or loved it, then, you know, they've done something. I feel like we've done something. What, 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 what are a couple of plays that you love that you think sort of like helped form you and your sensibility? See, I, I didn't really study plays being a playwright. It was more so musicals. That's, okay, so what that's musicals? Um, obsessed with Rent. I did the national tour at 19 years old. And the love that that show gives over those footlights is something that has kept it alive and necessary 25 years later. It's a really great. I remember walking around. I, I, I remember where I was downtown and hearing like, wow, this guy passed away and his play is about to open. And I was like, wow, like that's really sad that he didn't get to see his play open. Like, And just just that fact, they, it hadn't even opened. So we didn't even know what it was going to be. Yeah. But just like somebody just had said that to me like, wow, that's really sad that he passed away. right? And then it becomes this historic once in a generation sort of thing. Like, oh my God. Yeah, yeah. That's that's one, A New Brain, William Fenn, which is more of an off-Broadway musical. But it's, I'm a character-driven writer. So it's like, how do you make me fall in love with the characters? Not just the events um, are stories that I'm sort of drawn to. So- mm-hmm. Does mom see the theatrical roots of what she did in what you're doing? Yes. <laughs> My parents, <laughs> you know, we opened a couple weeks ago and uh, they're now the Obamas. Okay. Like they show up. <laughs> I took them shopping for opening night. They're on the red car. My mother does this thing. I love her. Well, she'll see so much. She don't necessarily remember. Oh, hey. Right. Like it's just um, I think they recognize the roots that they gave me and they see how that contributed. My dance teacher, uh, Leah Davila from New Haven, Connecticut, at 15 years old, had me teaching tap class. As a as a sophomore in high school, I think I was. And so I learned leadership and how to, like, run a room. She just started her studio. She saw me at another studio and was like, I think you have something I'm going to have you teach basic tap. When did you think this is for you? Cause you're teaching tap at 15. So was this theater and playwriting, uh, was it before then or after then? They're like, this, this is what I want. Theater happened at 17, the national tours of rent, which I would join two years later. And, um, cats came through new Haven, Connecticut, the Schubert theater. And I just remember being like, what is this thing? They're, there's Jellicoe Cat. They have makeup on. They're singing and dancing. And I sing and I dance. What is this? What is this thing? And someone was like, it's called musical theater. You should apply. And very late into my senior year, I applied to four schools. Two were virtual auditions. 
One uh, that I got a callback for was the Hart School, and that's the only program I got into in Hartford, Connecticut, and it's a wonderful conservatory. And I got the skills to like sharpen my natural talent. When did you come out to your parents? This is a very difficult topic and it's an ongoing thing. It, it's not, it's not that easy. I'll just say that. But coming out what is you not that easy. Uh, well, I, I respect that. Yeah. But what do you, what do you mean? It's, it's a, I will say it's an ongoing development of self-discovery and it's, I don't think coming out to, when did you come out is, applies to everyone because I think we've come out in different ways and for different reasons. Um, so, yeah. So are you saying that you haven't just fully said to them, like, we've had conversations about sexuality, but it's not as black and white as your typical come out story, if you will. Uh huh. Okay. But they're, they're supportive. They're supportive. They're supportive of their son doing the things that he's doing. It, but it's not as supportive as him being a theater star. Oh, no. They're supportive, point blank, period. They are proud okay. of their son, Douglas Isaiah Lyons. <laughs> are you the first? Are you the first board? I am the only technically. What do you mean technically? Okay, so I have, okay, okay, wait, that's going to sound wrong. I, I'm the only child. I have two god sisters that were raised in my house when I was like six okay. years old. And so they're like sisters to me. And one of them had two yeah. kids. So I'm an uncle, but like biologically, I'm the only child. But I have two dear, very close sisters, as I call them. No, I mean, I know what you mean. Black families get, you know, complicated. There may be a sister or brother who doesn't live with you or sisters who do live with you, but they're not really sisters, but they are really sisters. And uh, so, yeah, no, it, it goes all sort of different directions with yeah, us. Yeah, it's a blended family. Hell yeah. Yeah. Um, you know, I ask everybody who comes on the show, what being black means to you and where it shows up in the work. And you're doing work that really talks about and to uh, black experiences and black audiences. So what is what does being black mean to you? I honestly think in the past year and a half, that question has amplified itself in my life because I had to stop and really look in the mirror and there have been moments where I have gotten into it with other people in my community in the way that like my experiences don't necessarily align with theirs. And so for me personally, being black is the pride to take up space where it was not given to you and to own it without apology. And that's going to be different for everybody. Um, but it is, it is the, the comedy, the richness, the recipe that, Black people only know to be black. There are things that we do unlike anybody else. Um, and to be black at all times, to not change given what space I'm in, to not adjust myself, uh, but to really authentically stand not only in my purpose, but in my skin. Um, and it's an active thing, especially in show business, right? I feel so much about like standing on the shoulders of those who came before us, you know, specifically in my family, you know, they, my father came from the projects. We were very much not in the projects. Think about the civil rights and black power leaders who allowed us to be here. Um, you know, about the people in my field, you know, whose shoulders I stand on. Like, like it's so much about like 
it's very tangible, all the people who are like lifting us up so we can be at the space where we're at. And I'm sure you must feel some of that. I have a James Baldwin, Toni Morrison, and um, Cicely Tyson poster right above my writing desk. I've learned, especially during this time, the shoulders in which I stand on. And I don't take that for granted because I, it is my responsibility every day to push as hard as I can for the people who wanted to, but were not allowed. And that's what I mean about being in this space and not being, you know, not apologizing for anything because I've worked real hard to get here. And I represent like this show represents so many more things than just myself. When you talk about the folks who were not allowed, so you mean like you envision people who had an equal amount of talent in the, as you in the present or the past who were not for whatever reason, luck, racism, whatever, were not able to find their way in and use their talent. And so you're, you're sharing your sort of heart or spirit with them. If you go back to like the early 1900s and like how minstrelsy started with Broadway, Right. And how one of the first musicals, I think, was like something of a coon man or something like that. Like black people, they could when they were on stage, the stories they really had to tell were not allowed. They had to be on blackface in this space. Right. About 100 years ago, that was the the only option they had to be entertainers. Right. So if I am given this opportunity to advance the joy and the authenticity of my story, I at every turn, I have to celebrate that because there are literally people who wanted to who were not allowed. Right. I mean, it's, it's, it's extraordinary to think about the folks who were not allowed and getting that chance. You have Norm Lewis in your play, and he has been doing such extraordinary work for so long. You know, as soon as you see him, you know, like you're in good hands. You've been, and I've seen you, you're, you know, you're part of the family. First of all, how'd you get him in the mix? And what is it like working with him and all that experience? I was introduced to Norm at a wedding of a mutual friend, my best friend, Christine. And he had done a show with the groom. And I met him and I said, hey, I'm a big fan. And also I'm a budding writer and uh, I have some things I think might be good for you. He actually did a workshop on, of another musical I wrote. And when this opportunity came up and we found out we were going to Broadway, I was like, I don't know what your schedule looks like, but I think you might be really good in this role. And Norm Lewis has been a gem in that every space he has gone into on a radio show or a TV show or interview, when he could mention my name, he was mentioning it as someone to follow. And he's always been very supportive with his words. And so... The alignment just came, you know, he had read the play. He thought it was hilarious. And uh, I think he shuffled some things, but was able to make it work. And that's how he got into the company. I imagine somebody of that level of experience is able to take your words and and own them and move them in a way that you're like, yes, that's what I was thinking. But you've also taken it in a different direction that I love. Yeah, he... I think Norm also has, this is his first play in New York City. So he's oh, wow. usually seen either on television or being in a musical. And so I think it was a, a give and take. And he's so respectful. He'd come over and be like, hey, can I change this the 
to thee or aunt, right? And then he just wouldn't do it. He would really ask. And I was like, yeah, I don't, I don't care. You know? Um, so no, I, I also like to build on actors. You know, if there's a joke that isn't rubbing or isn't landing on them, I'm like, okay, well, maybe after rewrite, how can we figure out, you know, and play, play. What feels good to you? So it was a true collaboration that way with him. It's, a, it's amazing. I mean, like, as a writer, I feel... Uh, kind of egotistical and like, you know, I've written these words and this is the way it's supposed to be. And the thought of like somebody else coming in, like, can I change this here? I'm like, did you, do you go to Nobu and say, can I change the side dish? I'm like, I, I wrote this. Like I've been doing this for 25 years. Like, what do you mean? Can I, change? but, but no, if you're going to be in the theater or in a movie or something, you're working with experienced people. You have to trust them enough to say, I'm putting this in your mouth. What's going to feel good in your mouth, in your body? And let's work together. Yeah, as long as it doesn't derail the why, as long as we're not getting away from what I wanted to say, if it's going to land in a way that makes the actor shine more, no sweat off my back. Let's do it. You know, (laughs) unless it's language that I like. And mind you, as an actor, when I write, I say every line 12 times and I like talk to myself. So sometimes I'm very meticulous about which words I chose and they will get notes about that. Well, I'll be like, it's not it is it is what's on the page there. So let's say that. But when we're building, I'm very open because ultimately it's going to be them. When you're acting, how do you take those words and find that that backstory that that's not on the page that deepens what is on the page, but, but, but stays true to it. I think part of that, according to what the show is, is with your fellow actors and the relation, I'm a very relationship building sort of centered actor. So sometimes you can do that work, that backstory on your own, but also the dynamics of, you know, the, your partner, your scene partner is going to help that relationship. Because mm. that is the chemistry that the text alone will not give. And with each collaborator, that's going to be slightly different, right? Mm. Mm. One last thing that I ask everybody, your superpower. What is the thing that you, Douglas, do better than other people that has led to the success that you've had? I'm persistent. I show up. And I believe in myself. I really do. I believe that I, I've been given in some things that I don't necessarily understand how, and they have a right to be told. And so I, I and that rubs some people, right? Because I think we live in a society that teaches us to be meek and not too big. And I've just not, my parents have not raised me to be that way. So I'm persistent when I believe in something, I, I push it until it happens. And that's why the, you know, I slid into the DMs of a Broadway producer. That's part of the reason Chicken and Biscuits got to Broadway. But especially for a, a black person, if you don't believe in yourself, the world is not going to roll up and be like, you're great. Here's some money. Go do your thing. You better believe in yourself because the world's going to tell you every day you ain't shit. At all. You ain't got you garbage. You be, you don't belong in this. But people are going to say, uh, and sometimes it's our own people. That's a whole nother thing. But yes. Right. Like it, you have to be steadfast. You have to know that you are worth your salt, and and that is something that I think I, I I that pushes me forward. But when it comes from us, right? That's internalized racism. That's a we got in a whole nother segment for that. I mean, I, and I think and I think part of the sadness for me too is 
because it feels like there isn't enough space, when you see someone advancing, you I've been, you know, I it, you're, it's only happening because you're, you know, so close to whiteness, right? You're obviously whitewashed. It's like, I don't, I, that's unfortunate. I find that stuff to be unfortunate because I'm like, even we cannot see that persistence cannot be authentic to who we are. Mm. I mean, I think a lot of us are persistent, um, but I think especially the black baby boomer generation was used to ceilings and used to so much failure, or at least we can only get so high that they didn't want us to get our hearts broken, right? And they would tell us things like, oh, you got to work twice as hard to get half as much, and it's going to be hard. And, you know, I, 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 you know, I think that perhaps part of Obama's ability to succeed is he had a white mother who would never have told him, hey, there's a limit, right? And, and black parents, I'm not saying all black parents are telling us that. And they may not be telling us that with their mouths, right? They may be just sort of communicating in a way like, you know, there's limits. The white man only gonna let you get so high. Anne never thought of that because she was a white woman. And that goes to Obama. And he's like, well, why can't I be president? What's crazy about, and I've heard this uh, story second-handedly. Um, if you go back to slavery, right, when a black woman was caring for her child and the slave master came over and said, wow, he's, he looks mighty strong. He's doing really well. Her emotional, like, guardianship is, oh, no, he's not. No, 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 because she didn't want to lose him. That same, like, reaction is then passed down generationally. And mentally, though that a Black woman might believe and love her child, she is not publicly, she does not know how to celebrate him publicly because generationally, trauma, she couldn't for danger of losing him. That is, that is some, that, right, when, I, when that hit me, I went, oh, that's stuff you can't even explain. No, that's deep. And think about the black men who, you know, leave the house, go to work, get beat up by the man, come home feeling low, putting that on their family, you know, trying to, you know, if my son doesn't, or my daughter doesn't dream too high, then they won't get their heart broken. Like, damn. Yeah. And, and my, so my father, and he won't be, a shame that I, I said this, but at 13, I said to him, I said, I know you didn't grow up hearing it all the time, but I need to hear you say, I love me. I love you. Wow. You told him, I need you to tell me, I, I need, love I you. need you. I need to hear it more. And what did he say? Now, Douglas, I love, I love you. Now I can't. Now he, he loves me so much. He says it twice and three times on the call. So he responded. Oh yeah. Oh yeah. Was he, was he physical with his love? Yeah. 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 It's, and what's beautiful about it is I think my father instilled in me all the dreams he wasn't allowed to have. Mm. And so part of why I am the way I am is because he was saying to me, oh, I mean, it's funny. I, my He's like, uh, you know, Douglas, you're going to get to Broadway and that's just going to be the beginning. And I was like, OK, black man. OK. All right. Listen, he was right. He was like, that's just going to be a page, you know, a chapter, and then, and you're on to the next thing. And he could see something that I couldn't see, but I, I really started listening 
to the possibilities and I went for it, you know, but that came that a lot of that came from him. They had me try every sport, every choir, Boy Scout, every do it, go. Why not fall? And you got to finish it. You got to see it through. You don't have to do it again, but you got to see it all the way through. And so that mentality is in me. Thank you so much to Douglas for a great interview and thanks to you for listening. Torre Show gives you fuel to power your dreams because you can use your dreams like a rocket ship to blast you into a life you never imagined. You can make your dreams a reality and this show can help. You can find me on Twitter at Torre and on Instagram at Torre Show. Torre Show is written by me, Torre, and produced by Jackie Garifano. Our editors, Ryan Woodhall. Our photographers are Chuck Marcus and Shanta Covington and Nick Carp. Our booker is Claudia Jean. And we're distributed by DCP Entertainment. And we will be back on Wednesday with more amazing guests because the man can't shut us down. We live in a world where you can get anything you need delivered to your door thanks to DoorDash. If you don't want to do the dishes or you feel a little sick, let DoorDash bring dinner tonight. My family uses DoorDash all the time because it connects us to our favorite restaurants without us having to drive. Last night, we got some Indian food for my wife, some gumbo for me, and sushi for the kids. And everyone was happy, and we didn't have to do the dishes. The process of ordering was quick and easy, and I love DoorDash for real. So I was so happy to do this for them because I'm a customer, because I know DoorDash is your door to more. Must be over 21 to order alcohol. Alcohol available only in select markets. DoorDash, your door to more. Download the DoorDash app now to get almost anything delivered.